Good afternoon, everybody. So we're giving a joint presentation, um, and I kind of think it's going to be a bit like a snooker match because, as Sally stands up, I will sit down like snooker players do when they, you know, finish <laughs> making a break. And there may be a point where we just kind of hop around the table because we're going to swap over. So we're going to be talking to you about the research findings that have come out of the project that Tony was talking about, which is based at Sheffield, involving these other five universities, and a strand of that involves uh, collection of data. A large part of which Sally, myself and Gillian Hampton-Thompson from Sussex University have done and we've got other packages as part of that research project which involve uh, qualitative research and some reanalysis of the Future Track study which you might have heard of, of um, a cohort of UCAS entrants. So where we come into this is uh, thinking about postgraduate study and postgraduate education being much more prominent and important uh, a part of our sector than hitherto. Um, and I think, you know, if you go back really not too far, postgraduate activity was really very unusual, very minority, uh, very small as a proportion of what institutions were doing. And as we've seen the growth in undergraduate numbers, this dark blue area uh, in general, then the proportion of postgraduates has also increased too. So we've had expansion, but the, the um, number of postgraduates at the end of this period is much... Um, higher both absolutely and relatively to undergraduates than it was even say 25 years ago. So a bit of a quiet revolution going on in universities in terms of postgraduate numbers. Um, but what's prompted lots of the policy attention is a feeling that numbers have started to drop away, particularly among uh, UK domiciled taught postgraduate students. So uh, this is a graph from Hefke which is so showing uh, continuing my chart really and then as we come into the most recent period numbers dropping away and there's been lots of speculation about uh, the effect that £9,000 tuition fees are going to have on that and expectation from many uh, commentators that we're going to see that curve really sloping off um, in, in future years and uh, Tony already mentioned this we've had comment from people like Al Alan Milburn saying uh, postgraduate study is a, a ticking time bomb of social mobility. Um, we've had the Sutton Trust saying it's a new frontier in the battle to, to improve social mobility. So not only are the numbers dropping away, or we've got concern about the numbers, but it's concern about who gets in and are we basically moving a problem from 18 up into the mid-20s. We're kind of dis just moving the inequalities on to a later stage. Um, and again, as Tony said, this has prompted the announcement of uh, the loan funding by uh, bids in the autumn statement and in the budget. So we know a little bit, um, and as Martin Conley said, I've been sort of banging away on this topic for, for some time. Um, we know a little bit about, what's, uh, about this uh, group of people. So we know there's some inequalities by uh, socioeconomic background in access to postgraduate qualifications. So there's, uh, economists have shown that your income quintile, so that the income of your parents, uh, influences how likely you are to go on to, to postgraduate education. We've got similar uh, evidence about uh, neighbourhood, so the kind of area that you're living in, whether that's a low participation area affecting carrying on. Social class backgrounds, some work that I did uh, with Jill on um, using HESA data, we've, we've seen that. And also there are, there's evidence in relation to gender, um, so, across the system, women are less likely to go on to postgraduate study holding other factors constant than men, and particularly for research degrees. And there's some complex inequalities in relation to ethnicity, so we know there's some issues there. But, 
conditional on being a graduate, the kinds of the, the level of difference that we see is smaller than what we see at undergraduate level. So those inequalities are there, but not as stark as the ones that we see at initial access. Um, and we also know that some of those kind of major structural factors within the higher education, so the subject of, of your degree, the kind of institution you go to, and what you get in your degree, they all influence whether you go on. So th they are uh, part of the picture, really. Um, and we know that we know perhaps a little bit less about the other factors. Now, uh, I'm uh, a sociologist of higher education, I, I would describe myself as, um, and so I'm interested in uh, how postgraduate study fits into this, uh, to the sort of broader picture of social mobility. Uh, and we have some indicators or some suggestions perhaps from uh, sociology more generally about what we might expect to find in looking at postgraduates. So we know across the globe as educational systems expand you tend to get a kind of passing up of educational inequalities. So it used to be if you finish secondary school hey you were already massively advantaged compared to everybody else and in a few countries that's still the case. Um, and then as everybody gets to go to secondary school the government uh, makes that universal so the inequalities then go up to the next level to go up to getting say uh, O levels or getting A levels and then it goes up to degree level so we would expect to see these inequalities as we equalize access to undergraduate study we'd ex expect to see that pass up to the next level uh, and sociologists call that maximally maintained inequality. We also know that uh, as qualifications become more popular their value declines um, you know and you know this yourselves you will know this certainly from speaking to your uh, undergraduate students if you have them uh, that what you used to be able to get with a degree that's no longer the case you've got to have a degree you've got to have all the extracurricular stuff you've got to have done an internship um, and there's still 300 people after every job uh, where you know it may have been that you kind of came along with your sports person's third and hey you know you were already in an advantage and we call this credential inflation but contrary to those we know that uh, the your background characteristics as you succeed in the educational system as you survive through each educational transition those background characteristics tend to become uh, less important the, the further on you go so people become more similar uh, to each other um, so the, the starkest um, class inequalities for example are in very early education um, and they kind of decline with successive transitions although there is some suggestions from uh, this latest study in America that they kind of start to come back in among postgraduate qualification holders so that's something um, we'd like to look just at here. Yeah. Is it because they've been filtered out and therefore the remaining group is from a particular subset? Yes, they're, they're, those people are, I mean, haven't changed their background. If they're not changed their background. If you think of, say, yeah, so you think of, of a PhD, a set of PhD students, they're a kind of type, aren't they? You know, they're all similar to each other in ways that we, um, you know, they may be different to the rest of the population through having been socialised through that process, through themselves choosing to do that. Um, and so they'll be similar in other ways that we can't really measure. Right. Um, and that, so, it, you know, the, the, the kind of raw effect of class background reduces. This is some, uh, just to show you uh, Hefke, some of Hefke's research about uh, inequalities by neighbourhood in different kinds of qualification. I think the blue lines are the important ones here. So this shows you that over time we have a gap between people in the lowest neighbourhood, people in the highest participation neighbourhood and going on to taught degrees. And 
uh, a gap as well for research degrees, but maybe a little bit narrower. Um, and if we track it over time, so that was people going immediately onto a postgraduate qualification. If we take people who graduated in 2002-03 and we track them across uh, nine years and see how their rate changes over time, we can see this initial difference in access to master's qualifications is really quite small between the least and most advantaged groups, but it sort of funnels out somewhat um, with the with the later transition. So the the inequality is actually smallest at that initial transition, which is kind of counterintuitive, perhaps. Okay, so that's set up um, the, the kind of research and academic background to some extent of what we've been doing. I'm going to uh, hand over to Sally now to say a little bit about the, the study that we've actually done in terms of what data we've collected. Okay, so um, in terms of the inequalities around transition which uh, Paul has just discussed, um, we felt as though existing data didn't really um, help us to explore those inequalities uh, particularly well. So under the um, data strand, we decided to uh, create three new data sets um, and the, the population for the study was um, all taught postgraduates um, at the six consortium institutions as well as alumni. Um, and this was obviously funded through the uh, postgraduate support scheme. So the first element of um, the, the, the data set that we created was of alumni, and uh, we ran a survey of alumni who graduated either in 2009 and 2012, and this was all UK domiciled students. Um, we then ran a survey of uh, postgraduates at the six universities um, in the years 2013, and this was repeated for the 2014-15 intake which included some of the postgraduate support scheme scholars, so we were able to look for differences in, in that uh, subpopulation. Um, and then finally, we uh, created a data set of application data, so this enabled us to track applications um, for both of those years and look at offers and enrolment. Um, and there were a few sort of uh, unique aspects of these data sets. Um, firstly, the alumni survey enables us to track what graduates go on to do um, at a much um, sort of further date beyond graduation. So a lot of uh, career survey surveys at the moment tend to collect data around six months after graduation, um, whereas research by Paul has shown that only a minority of graduates actually progress to postgraduate study um, immediately. Um, and also, uh, we felt that the, the prior activities of postgraduates is often unknown by institutions, um, so it enabled us to look in, in more detail about um, how their decision to come back to postgraduate study uh, fitted in with what they've been doing earlier. So this is just a screenshot of the, um, one of the postgraduate surveys. Um, so this is the introduction page. Um, here is one of the questions on funding source. So the alumni survey um, asked about personal characteristics, um, academic background, activities since graduation, um, aspiration for postgraduate study, um, including whether they had gone on to postgraduate study, and also um, took some details around um, early labour market experiences. Um, and the survey for current postgraduates was quite similar um, in detail but also have more on um, motivations for postgraduate study and how that fitted in with future plans. And this slide here is just showing you the size of these data sets. So 
um, alumni survey we had an overall for the six universities we had 8% response rates um, just under 3,000 um, alumni in there and for the two years of the postgraduate student survey um, the response rate overall was 18.5% and the application data um, has information sorry, on about 40,000 uh, applicants. That's everybody, isn't it? There's no missing data there. Yeah, that's complete. So just to run through some of the um, key characteristics of the uh, postgraduates in our survey sample, um, we did some bias analysis on this and we found that the survey actually quite well represented the population of postgraduates. So um, the vast majority um, are undertaking a taught master's degree, about 85%, and about 10% of the sample um, are PGC students. Um, about half are recent graduates um, and about a fifth uh, com uh, started their undergraduate degree in 2004 or earlier. So most of them um, started their undergraduate degree within the last 10 years. Um, mostly our um, these are state educated students um, and we actually found that privately educated students were slightly underrepresented in our sample by the um, rate that we see in the consortium institutions. So about 14%, I think, in this sample um, were privately educated. 85% um, have a good degree, so a 2-1 or above. Um, about a third had um, a first-class degree. And um, we found that most had either one or both parents had um, participated in higher education. So only a third um, had, neither parent had been to university. Um, and around 15% had dependent children. And the gender split was about 60-40, female to male. Um, and I should also say that most of these um, postgraduates we observed had achieved their undergraduate degree within the consortium as well. So there seemed to be a evidence of returners and, and people staying within the same um, local area. Okay. Okay. Thank you. So, um, so we've told you about the, the background, we've told you about the study, um, and now we're going to go into presenting you some of the results. And uh, this is just to say, really, that this is you kind of captures in the middle of the, the analysis. So I think um, you know this is where we want to be at the end with a, a completely fully formed picture. But at the moment we're sort of somewhere in this stage that we're sort of um, working from the ground up and and, uh, and building our results. So. Uh, and you know, I think you, you'll have some interesting comments to, to give to us about um, how we might interpret some of these. So I'm going to start off by looking at uh, the, the influence of people's backgrounds, so far as we could measure it, on whether they progress to, to postgraduate study or not within the consortium. This slide shows you uh, people's occupational social class background, um, and we have in the light green we have the rate of progression for 2012 graduates and in the dark green for 2009 graduates. So I think what we can see there is if we look at the immediate transition, that light green colour, that the, the usual social class differences we'd expect to see, which is we would usually expect this group to have the highest progression rate and this group the lowest, doesn't quite come through. Um, so the, it's actually the intermediate group that has the highest rate of progression. But if we then move forward to people who graduated earlier than that in 2009, we can see that for this most advantaged group, the participation rate uh, almost doubles. It certainly jumps up quite a bit more than it does for the other groups. So 
So there may be different ways of interpreting that, which is to say, well, we might say, actually, you know, class is not having the, the effect that we think it would or expect it would. Or we might say um, that the immediate transition looks okay. And where we're seeing inequality is in the people who go out into the labour market and then decide, for whatever reason, they need to come back in to do a postgraduate qualification. Um, and um, this is conjecture now, but it may be that there's a group that go out, they find they're underemployed, uh, they're not in the job that they expected, how do I now get into a position where I can get that graduate job when I go back and do a postgraduate course? Some can, some can't. So that it could be an explanation of what we're seeing there. Uh, and this breaks the, the qualifications out by um, master's and research degrees. So we can see the people going on to master's degrees. This pattern here um, very much reflects the overall pattern. But for research degrees, it, it, you know, it looks like trendless fluctuation to me. It's a bit sort of um, all over the place. So the 2009 graduates, quite a high progression rate for routine jobs, um, but not so among the, the most recent graduates. And again, that's quite a small group within the, the graduate population as well. Um, this is looking at school background as a measure of um, social background, which is notoriously flaky because um, the state sector is so big and so diverse and there's some very um, advantaged children in the state sector. Uh, but here we see really not much difference at all across the, the different kinds of schools. And I'm a little bit surprised by that, uh, but that's what the, the pattern that's, that's coming out of the data. Um, and one of the things that, that makes me wonder about is whether, um, because we have a set of six institutions that are really quite similar to each other, whether those people, uh, back to your question, it's Ian, isn't it? Back to your question about um, selection. It may be that the people who end up in our sorts of institutions are similar to each other in many different ways. And if we had a different set of institutions, we might see something different. Because with some very much older data, I found that um, the progression rate seemed to vary a lot more between different kinds of institution than it did within those institutions. So if we take the most disadvantaged graduates or disadvantaged background graduates in Russell Group universities and compare them to the most advantaged in post-92, then this group has a much higher rate of progression to postgraduate study. So it may be that that's um, underlying the data that we're seeing here. Where we do see a difference is if we use parental education as the measure of, uh, of background. And we were able in our research to ask about uh, both parents, if both parents were, were in the picture. Um, so we could measure whether people had none, one, or both parents having had higher education themselves, whereas in HESA data it's just what has any parent had higher education. And this is more like what I would expect to see in that the people with two parents in uh, with higher education had higher rates of progression for both years than the people with one parent who in turn had a higher rate than no parent. So that different measure is giving us, for master's degrees, a different uh, outcome. It's not as clear a picture for progression to uh, a research degree. Um, apologies for the gender stereotype colour scheme on this, but this is looking at uh, men and women's progression to uh, to postgraduate study. And I think this shows us that uh, men are more likely to go on to do a research degree, uh, and we suspect that's to do with subject discipline, and that's a, a level of digging that we've, or rather a level of construction, if you think of the Ivan Tower, that we've yet to do. 
Uh, but for master's degrees, no difference in 2012 graduates, and in 2009 graduates, it's women who are a bit more uh, likely to come back. So um, gender is a, an area of progression that we're going to be focusing on for future presentation. We'll be digging into that in a little bit more detail. We also looked at the, the class background of uh, our current postgraduates, so that's the set of people who are already doing it. Um, and this distribution is what came out, and actually that quite closely matches um, the, the distribution of the graduates in these universities. Um, but then we were able to look at our scholars, so the people who got the awards that Tony was talking about in the most recent scheme, um, compared to the people who didn't. And you can see here that there's a real uh, spike in the people from the more um, deprived backgrounds, that they're much more likely to be in this routine manual group. So that's suggesting that one aspect of our um, scholarships, which was targeted at disadvantaged groups, was hitting home. So they are a different group, and they're people that possibly wouldn't have been in this population otherwise. And they had, 50% of them had... Um a parent with no HE qualification, which compares to 30% of the whole population. So, Okay. Yeah. So, Sally, you're now going to talk about funding. Yeah. Yeah, so the next um, selection of slides are about how postgraduates fund um, their studies. And the first thing that we looked at in this context was the, the debt of postgraduate students. So this slide here shows graduating debt. Um, and it's difficult to see the trends overall, but what we can say is that a significant um, proportion, about one-fifth, do have a debt of between 20 um, to 25,000 upon graduating. Um, but we're also particularly interested in the group of uh, no debt whatsoever, which is about 14% um, on graduation. Um, and moving on, we then asked about repayable debt. So this was debt at the time of the survey. And again, um, we see among these postgraduates, um, about a fifth still have quite a significant amount of debt. Um, so we need to look at this further, but it does seem as though some of the initial um, analysis that we've done has shown that debt by itself um, might not be that strongly associated with progression. Um, but as I say, we need to uh, perhaps look at this in combination with um, other background characteristics. Um, and I think uh, this slide here about the alumni sample, this is showing um, proportions from the alumni uh, group who have progressed. Again, um, it's difficult to observe the trends, but certainly there are um, considerable groups of students with higher levels of debts who have progressed. So moving on to source of funding, um, the light blue bars here show um, how students have paid for their tuition fees, um, whereas the dark blue is referring to living costs, and students could select more than one option here. So in fact we saw that many were relying on um, multiple funding sources to balance their postgraduate costs. Um, I think that the story here is that for um, high proportions are using savings to pay for fees, um, but then if we look at income from job, um, it's much higher, almost 50% are having to draw on that to um, support their living costs. Um, and then some of the other sources of funding we have um, are, are drawn on by quite small groups of students, really. So it seems to be that savings and income from job are, are the, the dominant funding sources, um, but for different aspects of um, the cost of postgraduate study. 
So in the next few slides, I'm going to break out um, funding source by some of the background characteristics. Um, and the first one of these is tuition fee by um, parental social class. So the darker blue um, bars show um, the class one, the higher social class, um, and the lighter blue is um, lower social class group three. Um, and moving across the chart, we see that um, higher proportions of those from uh, lower NSEC are drawing from their own savings or income from a job um, to support their postgraduate studies, whereas um, higher proportions of those from uh, the higher social class are able to draw from family support, uh, whether that be a loan or a gift from the family. And this uh, distribution is also reflected when we look at living costs. Um, so again, higher social class, um, higher proportions drawing from um, family support, and um, we have higher proportions of those in the lower social class um, drawing from their own savings or, or having to work to um, support their living costs. So this is the sort of um, distribution that we would have expected to see, I think, running this analysis. We see a similar distribution if we compare uh, funding by parent higher education. So the dark blue here refers to um, students who have two parents who have attended university. Lighter blue uh, means no students. Um, and again, those who are able to draw on family support tend to be those who, uh, you know, both parents have um, attended university and we think this is obviously related as well to household income and, and capital so it's um, there's probably a multitude of factors um, explaining this and we see the distribution uh, very similar for living cost as well um, so this slide here shows time since undergraduate degree um, I don't think we asked the age of our, our current postgraduates in the survey so we're using this as a, a proxy of age. So the dark blue here shows more recent graduates, lighter blue in, is uh, having started their undergraduate degree more than 10 years ago. And I think as we would expect here, we see that those who are um, drawing from their own income, whether it's savings or job, uh, tend to be higher proportions of those um, from older graduates. Um, and those who are able to draw from family support um, are more recent graduates. So um, these trends look as we would expect them to. And uh, the picture is very similar for living costs as well. So moving on to the, the, the final bits of um, data, we are going to look at postgraduate motivations um, and evidence of differences here. So firstly, this slide is just showing um, the distribution of motivations for all the postgraduates um, over the two years. And we see that most important for over half of the postgraduates have selected um, progress career. Um, and this is followed by uh, to expand knowledge of a certain subject um, and enter profession as well. So they're the top three reasons, um, arguably quite instrumental, um, pragmatic reasons for undertaking postgraduate study. Um, now moving on to, to looking at motivations by different um, characteristics, we do see some differences. Um, so this is comparing um, non-PSS scholars with um, TSS scholars. So the light blue are our, our scholarship holders. And here, I think what really stands out is the almost half of these students are um, 
selecting uh, that they're undertaking a master's degree to progress to a PhD. So the academic aspiration is very high compared to um, other postgraduates. Um, and for these students as well, we see that the, the professional um, expectations around um, entering profession or progressing career are slightly lower for these students. So it, it does seem to be um, slightly different here. Now we also looked at motivations by um, parent social class and I think the trends are less clear cut here. Um, but if anything we see slightly higher proportions of those from lower social classes picking up um, some of the less career focused reasons. So you can see that um, higher proportions uh, select this idea of to make a greater personal impact on society and um, slightly higher of selected um, intellectual interest. And on this slide, we're looking at motivations by parental higher education. So the light um, blue is uh, two parents and, and dark blue is no parents. Um, I think here it's, it's hard to say there are um, particular trends around that background characteristic and motivation. Um, and finally, we looked at motivation by time since undergraduate degree. <coughs> Um, and I think the really interesting thing here is this final reason to change my career, which on the whole wasn't that popular when we looked at the total population, really spikes up for those who um, received, uh, started their undergraduate degree um, over 10 years ago. So this supports this idea of returning to postgraduate study to change career, progress <coughs> career in some way. Um, okay, I think that's everything from those slides. So I'm just sorry. Yeah. Sorry, can I just clarify that for my last point that you yeah. made? That um, students coming back to do master's degrees because they're pursuing a change in career are students who did their undergraduate um, more than ten years ago. Is that what you're saying? Started their undergraduate so degree more than ten years ago. Um, so we see it's, <coughs> it's the last um, data point there. So we see that higher proportions have, have selected that as a, a motivating reason. Um, much higher than more recent graduates. Because they're more likely to have a career that want to change or progress it. Yeah. Yes. Yes, I guess that's the that's the case or, or they're willing to if they're in one they're willing to give it a bit longer. Yeah. Potentially. Mm. Or they can't get out of it because they you know mm. for some other reason, financial mm. yeah. <laughs> Okay. Yeah. So I'm just gonna now um, offer some concluding thoughts really to try and see if we might make sense of this and you know, I think this is where we'd be grateful for Brooks, you and for, for everybody else's view really. Um, so I think overall, as I said, you know, we've got these expectations that we might see um, and I think overall generally there seem to be more similarities uh, in the across the different categories we've looked at and the way that people responded to say funding, to uh, their motivations uh, across background and to some extent across the age and experience than we, we perhaps would have expected to see, uh, with some exceptions. So parental education, I think, came through uh, as a strong um, differentiator. Um, the thing that I pointed out at the beginning about that jump in the most advantaged students between 2009-2012, are they kind of discouraged workers coming back in to further study? That might be something um, that stands out. And we saw that those scholars, the people we'd given the scholarships to, 
we're in some ways quite different. So you know, we are we are getting a different group. So the question is why, and I want to offer three candidate explanations really. Um, so one is what Tony was suggesting at the beginning that people might say, well, you know, higher education is a great level of you get them in the front door. It's a bit like the old grammar school system. You know, you get in the grammar school. There's plenty of Labour MPs who stand up and defend grammar schools because, well, I did okay out of it, didn't I? Um, so there's that explanation, but that's kind of contradicted by much broader research. Uh, so we've got this particular set of slice of the data, and the broader research seems to contradict uh, that. Um, so uh, colleagues at the LSE are talking now about the class ceiling and the fact that even if you're socially mobile through higher education, you don't get on as far, you know, you become a, a GP instead of a, a senior surgeon as you're socially mobile. A second one, I think we have to be alive to this, is a skewed sample. So you saw what our response rates were like. We've tried to adjust for the non-response, um, but we've got to remember that people seem to be more likely to respond to our survey if they were doing postgraduate study, because they're probably more interested in it than people who are not interested in doing postgraduate study. So we have to bear that in mind, that skew of the six institutions that we've picked and the skew of who's responding, and we can respond, uh, adjust for that as well as we can try, but uh, you know, we have to uh, bear that in mind. Um, and then it may be that we're seeing what economists call unobserved heterogeneity. Uh, what does that mean? <laughs> so that means that uh, it's, it's what I was saying in response to that comment before, these people are alike in ways that we can't measure. We don't have a variable that says, um, you know, are you the sort of person who ends up in a, one of these Northern Russell Group universities in these particular cities or not? But if we had that variable, then that might explain some of the, the, the differences. Or it might be it's another unobserved variable that's important, and that's what are the disposable assets that people have. And we've talked about this parental education measure, we've talked about um, the occupational social class, and it may be that that isn't really getting at how much financial resource people have got to uh, give to their kids to, to go on to postgraduate study. Um, and that then begs the question really of the relationship between some of the undergraduate measures that we use for widening participation like um, social class, like neighbourhood, and how do they actually relate to people's, um, excuse the abbreviation, household residual income. So we use these different measures, but are they measuring the same thing? And some work that I've done with Mike Savage at the LSE has been using uh, the Great British Class Survey data set uh, and comparing outcomes for Russell Group graduates using occupational social class and the Great British Social Class model, which seems to give much more weight to wealth. And you see some really quite different um, outcomes depending on which measure you, measure you use, such that the... Um, kind of top end of the Russell Group, if you will pardon the expression, have much more um, financially positive outcomes than number 24, which is York University, so I can say that. We're the bottom Russellers, the apologies to David Watson. So there, there, there may be um, something in there about um, disposable assets and uh, that we need to get that. So what are we going to do next? The next thing I think is to look at subject differences, because we know they're going to be important. Um, we've got this wonderful application and admissions data set to, to dive into as well. Um, and we're going to do something a bit more sophisticated in terms of modelling progression, starting off with looking at death, and that's underway at the moment. Um, and also looking at 
people's career pathways. So actually picking up on your point again about what jobs have people got into that they've then come back into postgraduate study from, um, or what have they gone into that they think now, well, I don't need to do a postgraduate course. So we've got some of that data that we can start to look at. Okay. There's the references. Thank you very much. Thank you.